my introduction, if it were appropriate, uh, would take the whole, whatever time we have. Uh, so I'll do it very quickly, but know that there's a lot of emotion and a lot of gratitude underneath um, what I'll try to make to be short and simple words. Um, I met Lisa at a Yun of the Riverdale community. I, that's what we have to call it now. Um, uh, about 15 years ago? I don't know, it's a while. And we became fast friends, and not long afterwards she invited me to come here to the community for Shabbat uh, to teach. And since then we have done a lot of cooperative things, in, including, it'll be a nice surprise for you, this winter I'm taking a class taught by Lior Gottlieb. Oh. And we came together as, as scholars and residents and did a, a little TED Talk thing. We had a lot of fun. And I, I can recall all sorts of places that I've been when I've suddenly got uh, an either a WhatsApp or a phone call from Lisa with some relatively obscure question, not on that Parsha, not anything particular daily, but, you know, just a question. And I still remember being in the parking lot, if anybody knows where this is, of the Jewel on Orchard in Skokie. And putting the phone like this, I didn't have an earbud, putting the phone like this and walking in and shopping for whatever I was getting there while I'm talking to about, I think, Kain and Hevel, I think. Um, and nobody was killed that day, so it was great. But, um, but uh, Lisa and I have been, I guess, phone chavrusas and WhatsApp chavrusas um, for a long time, and I really cherish the friendship, and I really am uh, deeply appreciative of the opportunity to come back to this community, being in South Florida for Shabbat. I look forward to coming back for a full Shabbat sometime soon. Magnify that by a bunch. I'm also both surprised, blown away in some cases, and just really, really happy to see some very dear old friends some of who I had no idea were in South Florida, and some who um, I, I knew were here but didn't know would be coming tonight. So it's really great to see you, and thank you. This morning, we met the most important Jew who ever lived. And uh, the story of his birth and the first few years is a well-known story, and because it's a well-known story, it is also a highly misunderstood story. I hope you will excuse me, but I think it's probably something that you want. I'm going to segue from time to time into broader methodological questions and issues about studying, studying Tanakh, which this parsha is as good a springboard for doing as any. The more that a story is popular, the more likely it is to be represented in popular culture in all sorts of ways. And the result of that is that it will often be misunderstood because an artist's impression, whatever it may be, becomes the way that the public sees it. Case in point, if you ask the average person on the street, what happened to Moshe Rabbeinu, not yet Rabbeinu, and not even yet Moshe, when he was put into a basket on the river. What happened to him? And nine, no, 99 out of 100 people will tell you he went floating down the river. Ten of them will say it was a class four rapids. The other ones will say he went floating down the river. And by the way, another five of them will tell us that Ofrachaza was singing in the background. <laughs> Such is the way, and I'm from the other Hollywood, and I understand the impact of film. But that's the way people think of it. And when you actually look at the parasha, 
without the movies, without the art, and lahavdil elef of the havdalot, without the midrashim, you see something very different going on. So let's look at this story. It will end with the title, which is the name of this baby. But along the way, we'll see a lot of other things. Keep in mind that the immediate previous pasuk, the end of chapter 1, is Vayitzav paro l'chol amor lemor kol ha-ben ha-yilod ha-yaora tashlichuhu v'chol habat techayum. That subsequent to the failure of Paro's decree, the private decree of the of the midwives, was the public decree to take any boy, and simple shot means any Jewish boy, and uh, to throw him in the river publicly, throw him in the river. Immediately afterwards, you read this: Vayelech ish mi Beit Levi vayikachet Bat Levi. Okay, what does that mean? What does that mean? Vayelech ish mi Beit Levi vayikachet Bat Levi. Who? Who's he? Who? Who got married? A man from the house of Levi, which means he is either a son of Levi, or a grandson of Levi, or a great grandson, etc. Right? Married whom? A daughter of Levi, not a granddaughter of Levi, but Levi. That's a little bit of a problem, isn't it? Because after all, that means that either a man is marrying his sister. Or a man is marrying his aunt, Osir, or a man is marrying his great aunt, etc. We have a problem here. But that immediately puts to the test the, the, the assumption that many people come to the text with, which is that these are the parents of the most important Jew who ever lived, and they're sterling, that was with an E, um, uh, members of Shevet Levi, and how could it be that they're violating the Arayot? The answer is, well, maybe that assumption about the avot and the great people in our past being punctiliously observant of all the mitzvot has to be re-examined. And then we can always take the Ramban's approach, which is they were only careful about the mitzvot in Eretz Israel. This is Chutzlarz. Hey, we're in Egypt. Let's just get married. <laughs> in any case, that's one issue. But there's a bigger issue here. What's the guy's name? I don't know. What's the girl's name? I don't know. How many getting Gamaliel? Yamod, Ben Levi, Yamod, Tabod, Bat Levi. Well, that's going to be somewhere else. Anyhow, Vatara Ishala Teled Ben. Let's move on. The woman gets pregnant and gives birth to a son. Very nice. Now, in critical, I'm going to go methodology again. Critical when reading a story in Tanakh. It is vital, and it's hard to do. It's vital that we erase everything that we know from the end of the story. We will not appreciate the story, and we will not be able to walk into the mind and the soul of the Rishonim who comment on the story if we can't erase what we know is going to happen because we don't feel the tension in the story itself. So, Vatar Haishava Tailed Ben, because we know who the kid is, we know who the mother is, let's drop, we don't know that. And so she becomes pregnant, she has a son. Vatera Oto Kitovhu. What does she see about him? He's good. What does that mean? What does that mean? You mean the option was, nah, he's not good, let's try another one? Like, how many mothers are going to feel differently about their kid? So what does Vatero Tokitovu mean? The answer is actually in the Pasuk. She hides him for three months. Okay, now, what does that mean? Because keep in mind, the decree that's right before this, any Jewish boy born has to be thrown into the river. 
So why is she able to hide him for three months? Say it again. He wasn't colicky. Okay, good. He was a quiet kid. What is Tavateret? She sees he's a quiet kid. So she's able to hide him for a while, and therefore the neighbors don't hear noises and baby stuff, and they don't see Amram in the middle of the night, sorry, oops, the guy in the middle of the night, running out to the 7-Eleven to get diapers, because the kid's quiet and sleeps well. And therefore, for three months, she's able to hide him. Okay, I want to just jump ahead, because we do know the rest of the story, and tell you a vort. But, but the vort is also part of the methodology. A vort, right, which when people don't like it, they use, sorry, vort remover. Okay, you have to do that. Right. Sorry. 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 Just had to get that. That's a dumb rabbi joke, which most people think is a redundant term. But anyhow. Um, but something, if you like it, take it to the Seder. If not, leave it here. It's fine. How many matzot do we have at the Seder? Three. Why do you have three matzot at the Seder? Why three? Oh, good. You're helping me out. Why? I didn't, I didn't ask what do we call them, which is, by the way, pretty weird. I mean, come on. We are a strange people. We've been accused of weird things. We name our bread. But we name it different names. Wait, wait, switch slavery. Oh, it's kind of strange. What? You have to have three because you have to break the Good, very good. Okay, so Neil points out we have to break the middle matzah, but let's ask the question, why do we have to break the middle matzah or break a matzah right now? Why do we have to break a matzah? So let's ask... Start from the other end. How many matzot do we really need at the table? Two, two and a half. Or two and a broken piece. Why do we need two and a broken piece? Why do you need two? Lachemishto. Why do you need a broken piece? Lachem oni. Right? So, so we follow, most people follow the approach of Tosfot and not the Rambam, which is instead of one and a half, two and a half. Two plus a half. Okay. So bring out two and a half. Everything about that? Bring out two and a half. Ooh, because then I have to, what do I do with Yachatz? Okay, so go to Oregon. There's a town called Yachatz. Enjoy there. There really is. Why do I have to break it? And what's the simple answer? By the way, the custom of breaking the matzah and hiding the matzah is late, late Middle Ages. The Ramam doesn't know about it. The Ravid doesn't know about it. So why do we do it? So the answer here, I'm asking why do we do it, the answer here is, is answer to many things we do at the Seder. <coughs> Keep the kids away, keep the kids interested, get the kids curious, behave weird, so the kids will say, why are you doing that weird stuff? By the way, which is really bad, because if you actually answer them, you're dead. Because why do you do that? So you'd ask. You have to stop and say, give, a, uh, give an answer. Okay. However, I'm going to tell you a vort about breaking the matzo. You told me yourself, what do you call the matzo? Koin Levi Israel. Who's the most important Levi in history? Moshe. Right. What happened to Moshe early in his life? He was broken away from his family. He was hidden. And then when he was brought out, he was able to save Am Yisrael. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. By the way, look at the word that we just used for when his mother hid him. What's the word? Batitzpinehu. What do we call that part in the Seder when we bring him out? Safun. Cute. Now, I'm saying cute not to denigrate it, but to clarify. What I just told you is not the reason... It's an explanation. And it's a critical distinction that I find many of my students in high school still can't make. It's a distinction that is not taught for good reason to elementary school kids, I mean young, first, second grade. To them, it's black and white. Either it's why we do it or it's not why we do it. 
But a more sophisticated person with time, and this should be happening by high school, can distinguish between this is the reason we do it, and once we do it, we use it as a launching pad to explain all sorts of beautiful things. I'll give another example of that further down in here, which is much more substantive than the one I just gave you. However, that's an important methodological note in our study. So right now, we're going to go back to Pshat and see what's going on. She couldn't hide him anymore. Why not? So evidently, by that time, the people are talking. What does she do? She makes a teva, which probably is an interesting word because it shows up in only two books in the Torah. Where are they? Here and Noach, and we're going to get back to that. Tevad Gomeh, she takes a teva out of what? Gomeh. Gomeh is reeds. Reeds. Why reeds? Say what is it? Ooh, very good, very good. We're going to come back to that. Excellent. All right, she makes a basket out of reeds. Vatachmira, she pitches it. She pitches it with bitumen and tar, which keeps it from sinking. Very nice. Okay, and now she puts the kid in the basket. And now we get to Ofrachazim. Shalom. Right? What does she do with the basket when she's got the kid in it? Where does she put it? In the suf. What's the suf? The reeds. The reeds. She puts it in the reeds. So it's in the reeds next to the yaor, which means what happens to this basket when she lets go? Nothing. It sits there. So much for the class four rapids. Ain't happening. It's sitting there. Now, we got to try to understand why she wants to camouflage it and what she has in mind, but we're going to see how that play out. Interesting note. Chemar. And this is where, as a, a student of mine likes to quote, which actually quoting me, but he likes to say the following, you cannot understand Tanakh unless you understand the world of Tanakh. You have to understand the world of Tanakh, the real world, both anthropologically, medically, um, uh, uh, socially, you can't understand it otherwise. Notice that chemar, bitumen, is used in three different stories in Tanakh. It's used in two in Breshit and this one. Where else in Breshit? Noah. Noah. And it mentions in the area of stone before the destruction. Berot, berot, chemar. Chemar, bitumen, is something that grows where there are rivers. Goes as part of the, the mud of rivers. It never shows up in a story of Eretz Israel for a very simple reason. We don't have rivers. And even the rivers that we have, the one river that we have, kind of, sort of, which is never called Nahar in Tanakh, the Arden, because of its depth and because of its narrowness, doesn't have a lot of the features that other rivers have. So Mesopotamia, which actually means Mesopotamia, between the rivers, <clears throat> is sick with rivers. It's got rivers left, right, and center. And all the materials that come from that, including chemar, are prevalent in the building. You don't have the same thing in Eretz Yisrael, but you do have the same thing, of course, in Mitzrayim, which is all around a river. It's all, all around a single river. As a matter of fact, in Mitzrayim, if you look at population in Egypt, you will see that it runs next to the Nile on both sides, and that's it. There's nothing else, to, nowhere else to live there. 
Okay, so just back to to Chimar, and that's an, a methodological note. So achoto. Now here's the problem. We know the story. We know the family. We often we will immediately assume that who is achoto? Miriam, of course. Miriam, by the way, is an Egyptian word, which means sister, and it also means beloved. Don't be so, I, I'm going to come back to this, don't be so weirded out because we have the same thing in Tanakh. What does the guy call the girl in Shirashirim? Achoti, Yonati, Tamati. Which brings us now to asking, well, who is this Achot? Because all we know is a guy married a girl and they had a kid, which sounds like they're newlyweds. Where's an achot coming from? So let me ask you, what's the male version of achot? Ach, good. I know I'm not in California, because in California, who knows what it would be. But, but ach. Now, how is ach used in Tanakh? Ach with a chet. How is it used in Tanakh? What does it mean? Brother, what else? Nephew, uncle, nephew. Avram says to Lot, Anashim Achim Anachnu. How else does it, what else does it mean? Co-workers. Yaakov speaks to his Achim and says, gather some, some rocks and make the pile with Levan. Other shepherds, Achai Me'ayin Atem. Treaty partners, Chiram says to Shlomo, Mahi Arim Ha'ela Shnatatali Achi. Ach is used in Tanakh as it is used today in Israel, which is bro. It's exactly what it means. So let me ask the question, is it possible that achot might have a more flexible meaning? And maybe the achot here is some family member, a nanny. We don't know. And we'll never find out for sure that this achot is the one that we think it is. I'm saying it because it's important when we're studying to keep our mind open to all the possibilities because then we may be surprised but pleased to find that different Rishonim or achronim will suggest something that otherwise we would block out. But now we understand that's a possibility. And by the way, at no point later on are we told Miriam's, except in Chazal, but in Tanakh, that Miriam's the one who stood by the river. We, we assume it, and it's a safe assumption, but not ironclad. So she stands from a distance to see what's going to happen. Understood. And now, who shows up? Now, again, we have to stop and put ourselves in the story to see what's going on. Where did the baby's mother put the basket? In the reeds at that spot. What do you think that spot was? Do you think it was an open beach? It was clearly a private royal beach. A royal bathing spot, which means, what's she hoping? So Yisrael Eldad had an interesting theory, I don't think as much as support, but an interesting theory is that this particular Bat Paro was actually a Phoenician girl who had, <coughs> whose mother had married Paro, and she came with, and she had an inherent sensitivity and identification with the Ivrim, and might save him. Maybe. It could be something more base than that, as we'll see. But Vateret Bat Paro so her maidens are walking with her where? 
near the river, but she goes into the river. So therefore, she's the only one who could see the basket because it's camouflaged. From on top, it looks like reeds. From there, you could see the shape. So she sees it. We got to do this one. It's too much fun. All right. She sees the basket on the reeds. And what does she do? She sends her ama, and the and the ama gets the basket. Okay. What does amata mean? Hmm? Okay. Good. So I'll so I'll tell you what the average person on the street. You ask the average person on the street about what does it mean? What are they going to tell you? What are they going to tell you? What are they going to tell you? I don't know what street you live on. My street, they'll say, what the heck are you talking about? But if you ask the average knowledgeable Jew, what will they tell you? Her hand. Because the Midrash had her hand stretching out. I know because I deal with a hundred knowledgeable Jews every day in school. And what? And I, this is an editorial comment, but a critical one. What I'm sad about is that in 12th grade, they still have second grade approaches. Because where'd they get that Midrash from? Rashi. Rashi is the one who popularizes Midrashim. You know what Rashi says? Vatishlachet amata shifchata. And then he says, Rabotenu darshu amata, the arm. And then Rashi on the spot says, but it's not what the Pasuk means. Because the word ama, meaning an arm or the measure ama, is spelled with a dagesh in the mem. There's no dagesh in the mem. So ama here means her maidservant. Rashi quotes the Midrash and immediately knocks it out. So that, of course, raises the question, why bring it? Why mention it at all? Let it be quiet there, and experts in the Midrash will know about it. Leave it alone. The answer is that Rashi actually is teaching us something deep and phenomenal with this comment. By saying, here's a Midrash, but it's not what the Pazuk says, he's teaching us a, a methodological point of studying Tanakh, which is vital. There are thousands of Midrashim on the stories that we all know and love. And most of these Midrashim, not all of them, but most of these Midrashim are not attempting to supplant shot. They are not trying to tell us this is what actually happened. This is what the person said. They're teaching us that there's a deeper level on which to read the text which communicates other things. And be aware that there is this whole texture to the text which expands our understanding, but that doesn't stand in lieu of reading the text straight. She sent out her maidservant to get the basket. So why quote the Midrash? So as we're going to see later on, this story about Moshe and being rescued from the water what is he called at the end? What, at the end of the story, what's his name? Moshe. What does Moshe mean? In Hebrew, what does Moshe mean? One who pulls others out of the water. One who pulls others out of the water. Wait a second, but he's, he was pulled. So this photo points out, one who pulls others out of the water because his destiny is to save Am Yisrael. Which means that we look at this story and this entire story that if you think about it is unnecessary anyways. All the details and the basket and everything seems to be unnecessary is there because this story is foreshadowing Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Wow. 
So let's roll back. Every time we describe Yitziat Mitzrayim, Vayotzienu Adonai Mitzrayim, Biyad, say it with me, Chazakah. And now you say the Midrash. Paro's got the Zorah Netuyah. So it operates on a very deep level, but it was her maid servant. And it takes a sophisticated mind to be able to juggle those and say, I know what the Pasuk is saying. And then by using Amma instead of Shifcha, it's subtly communicating something deeper, which is not what happened. The videotape will show her sending her her maid servant. We lost the copy. But there's a whole deeper thing going on. Okay, but her maid servant brings the basket. <clears throat> she opens up the basket and there's a boy. Why is he crying? Why is he crying? Of course he's crying. He's a kid. The little baby. No, no, we don't need colic. He's a little baby. He's suddenly cast in what seems to be a very womb-like environment. And then suddenly he's ripped out of it. There's lots of reasons he'd be crying. I don't think I think the Shiloh would be if he didn't cry. What does she do? And this is the turning point in the whole story. What does she do? She has compassion. Why does she have compassion? It's not a question. Why does she have compassion? I would ask if she didn't have compassion. How is it you see a little baby, you open it up, he starts crying and say, ah, the baby. Which means that the mother evidently knew what she was doing when she put it here. That there was something about Bat Paro, perhaps, sitting in the middle, in the eye of the hurricane here. The daughter of Paro made this decree. Are you guys, you guys like in your face? Do you like in your face? Wait, it's in your face here. It's going to be fantastic. Just watch it. <laughs> she sees the kid, and what does she say about him? Must be a Hebrew. How does she know that? So I know Brit Milan, I'm familiar. That makes her a little bit weird, but okay. What? Well, why, why, how would she know she's an Hebrew? So think about this. Are children, and this is very tragic to talk about, are children ever cast away? Yeah, they are. In every society, in every epoch, in every country in the world, children are cast away. Children are sometimes thrown away, sometimes drowned. It's terrible, but it does happen. Is it possible that if she finds a baby in the marshes, the baby is an unwanted baby? Sure. Somebody was raped, somebody wasn't married, somebody had a family. It doesn't matter why. It could be an unwanted child. But what does she see here in front of her? A waterproof basket. Get a swallow. He must be taken care of, which means this is not somebody who's trying to get rid of a kid. This is somebody, somebody who's trying to save a kid. Makes sense in Ivri. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, who shows up? This Achot. And says, Shall I go get you a Hebrew nursemaid? A Hebrew wet nurse, sorry. Why would that be the obvious thing? Because after all, the Achot who's just pretending to be a girl on, on the side. We don't know that she's got a little, you know, iron on her thing. Ivri, right? <laughs> Property of the Jewish people. Um, and she hasn't heard Bat Paro say me, that. Why would that be an obvious choice, a Hebrew wet nurse? So again, go into the story. They, didn't, they had to get rid of their kids. Thank you, and as a result? And therefore, they, they had milk, but they and therefore Craigslist right now under... <laughs> Wet nurses, Hebrew, 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 Canaanite, Hebrew, 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 Philistine, Hebrew, right? Makes sense. That's the population of wet nurses now because they've all, they're all lactating. And they, right. Good. 
So Bat Pero tells her to go. This is the beginning of in your face. Who does she go and get to nurse the baby? The baby's mother. Now, we're assuming here that she says, oh, I'm going to get the baby's mother, and that the mother shows up and says, oh, my kid, thank you. This is all in your face. Paro decreed that Jewish boys be thrown in the river and drowned, and now Paro's daughter is arranging for the baby's mother to nurse him, and it gets better twice. Watch this. Take this child, nurse him for me. But what does take him mean? Take him home. Which means, from what she understands, is allowing a Hebrew boy to be raised in a Hebrew home. What she doesn't understand is, he's going to be at his own home. And it gets better. It's like, it's, it's great. Every week, Amr and Yocheved get a check next to ACH, gets a little thing, you know, $500 been deposited to your account from Faro's finance ministry. Faro is signing checks every week for a Hebrew woman to nurse her own boy and keep him at home while he's got a decree there. There's such an in-your-face on this because that's what the whole story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim is. Paro, you think you have power? The whole story of the Makot. And here it starts. So she takes the boy home and she nurses him, which means that this baby, growing up in his own home for a few years till he's, till he's weaned, we'll call it between three and five, believe it or not, there are cultures where they would nurse children until well after that. Uh, but we'll call it three or four, okay? Now, here's what I want to ask you. When during the first three months, and now the next three, four years, what do they call the kid? Hey, you? What do they call him? Hey, the, what? <laughs> Heb, right? What do they call him? The answer is, we have no idea. We don't know. And for that reason, Chazal have, I believe it's about 15 different proposals of what his name was. Tov and Tuvia and Avigdor and Avisocho and Chever and Yered, you name it. Many of them from Divrayimim, a couple of them from this parsha. We don't know his name. By the way, we'll never know his name. I want to go back to the first pasuk before getting to the last pasuk. What's the name in this parsha? What's the name of the father? I don't know. What's the name of the mother? I don't know. What's the name of the achot? I don't know. What's the name of the baby? I don't know. What's the name about Paro? I don't know. No, but here, in this story, right? We don't. We don't have any names here. This story is absolute anonymity. Let's talk about that. Why is there anonymity in Tanakh? Why is there anonymity in Tanakh? Anybody, why are names left out in Tanakh? So five reasons. Okay, so sometimes the name is left out because, I'm going to say it a little differently, it doesn't matter. For instance, when Yosef is off looking for his brothers and he gets lost in Shechem, and he says, some guy says they went to Dotan. Go jump in a, jump in a lake. Or jump in a cistern. Right? We don't care who that guy is. So Chazal, Gabriel, Malach, etc. We don't know who the guy is because we don't care because it's not important for the story. He's a foil to move things along. Good. Why else would we have anonymity? Anonymity. How about the guy? Yeah. 
Say it again? You're saying in this particular case, but in general anonymity, when it just says ish. Like, for instance, the guy who collects wood out in the desert. And it's Mahal al-Shabbat. It could be anybody. Okay, good. We're going to get back to that one. In this particular case, it's actually one person, and we don't know who it is. Why? Maybe we want to protect his reputation or his family. And that's the famous machloka between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yeshua ben Mateira, when Rabbi Akiva says that the Mokoshesh was Stofchad, Rabbi Yehuda ben Mateira, sorry, says to him, One way or the other, you're in trouble. Because either you're wrong, in which case you're slandering somebody, or you're right, and the Torah Dafka left it anonymous, and you're making a limud to come here and figure out who it is. Shashtil. Why else would somebody be anonymous? Excellent. I love that. I'm going to add that to the list because that's a great notion, is that this could be anybody, and therefore we want to keep it anonymous to allow it to be anybody until it becomes somebody. Very good. I mean, a parallel thing I heard in the name of Nechama Zal, but I, didn't, I never saw it. That supposedly she said, if you look at the previous pasuk, and I believe this is a, a, a comment that nobody before World War II could have ever made. You'll see why. That the last pasuk in Parak Aleph is the decree to kill all the boys. You would think at that point that what would happen? People would stop having kids. You understand the World War II connection. But in, um, how do you call it, in, uh, in this story, what happens? Everybody's having kids. Everybody's having kids. Anonymity equals unanimity. Everybody's doing it. And one family we're going to put the focus on. But the, the not mentioning the names allows it to be anybody, which is a, a turn on what you said. I like yours better. It's great. Anonymity also may operate as the Torah's response, believe it or not, to ADD. You think ADD is modern. It's not. Being distracted is easy. It's an old problem. If you study Gemara, you know how frequently you have the phrase Amar Mar. What does Amar Mar mean? The master said, where does Amamar show up in the Gemara? It shows up when there's a discussion about something, and then there's a tangential, believe it or not, a tangential law brought in to clarify what something means, maybe a word. And that tangential law is in a whole other discipline. The Gemara is sensitive to the fact you could easily get distracted and stays on task and finishes the discussion, and then says, let's go back, Amar Mar, let's go back and investigate that tangent. But not yet. Let's finish what we're doing. If we say here, Vayelech ish v'beit levi u'shmo amram ben kahat ben levi, Vayikach et yocheved dodato, bat levi. We're going to start, ooh, it's an ev, da, 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 and who's that, and why kahat? You know what? We'll tell you the names later on. We'll hear them in Shani, in Vayera. In the meantime, Let's focus on this one scene because the spotlight's on a baby. There's one other occasion of anonymity which is of a very different stripe. And that is enforced anonymity. Meaning, where there's a name that gets wiped out. Where's that? Who's that? Plony Almoni. Plony Almoni in Megillat Root has a name, and I don't believe for one minute that when Boaz said, come here and sit down, he said, shave plony al-moni. 
He said, Shave Paul, Chaim Yanko. I don't know what his name. What happened? This guy, this Goel, refused to keep alive the name of his family member, and the result was his name gets censored. The text could have left it out, but it makes that point by putting in Plony Almoni. Okay, anonymity. But of course, the big problem here is what's this? What's this uh, kid's name? The one that we're going to see is the Savior. So let's get to it. Vaigdal Hayelet. Vatveyo Levat Paro. The kid grows up, and now the mother brings him to Bat Paro. Vahila Levain. What does Bat Paro do? Vahila Levain. She adopts him. Formal adoption. Vatikra Shemo Moshe. And this is, of course, the topic 35 minutes later. Vatikra Shemo Moshe. She calls him Moshe. Vatomer. Kiminamayim Ishitiu. Beautiful. It's a great idea. But there's an obvious problem here. Atparo is Egyptian, and with all respect to Israel al-Dad, she's a born Egyptian. The Egyptian language has zero in common with the Hebrew language. Not script, not language, not source, anything. It's not a Semitic language. How does Atparo know Ivri? And by the way, if she knows Ivri because somebody's teaching her for some reason, she should fire her teacher because her teacher messed up. Because what does Moshe mean? Somebody pulls others out of the water, not somebody who got pulled out of the water. Kind of strange. What's stranger yet is Moshe is the person with whom HaKadosh Baruch Hu spoke more than any other human in history. By a lot. What are the first two words that HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to his most captive audience, his most trusted prophet? What are the first two words he said to him? Look at the top of the next page. When Hashem encounters him at the snare, what does he call it? What is the first two words he says? Go ahead. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened to the text on the page. But... Beautiful. The first words that Hashem says to Moshe, Evid Neman are Moshe Moshe. Why is HaKadosh Baruch Hu using Bat Paro's Egyptian name? Why doesn't he call him by the name that we'd like to find out? Tuvia, whatever the name is. Strange. If you look into the Rishonim, and many of them address the problem of his name, they are far flung in their approaches. Wide range of approaches. But if we go back in history, we find that this issue shows up already in the first century BCE. You're probably familiar with Philo of Alexandria, Pihilon, who was the greatest Jewish philosopher of his day, a student of Hillel. He lived in Alexandria. From all of the evidence, he himself didn't actually understand Hebrew because all of his Midrashim are based on the Septuagint, on the Greek translation of the Torah. And Philo was a prodigious writer with lots of books. 
Many of them, by the way, were geared to a, sec- to a non-Jewish audience to make Judaism more understandable and more you know, comfortable for them. And he wrote among the books, The Life of Abraham, The Special Laws, he wrote The Life of Moses. And in The Life of Moses, he says the following. She gave him a name calling him Moses. By the way, he wrote in Greek, so English, Hebrew, I picked English. With great propriety, because she had received him out of the water, for the Egyptians call water Mos. Okay, Mos, water baby. Which then means that Moshe is a Hebraized version, Hebraized version of his name, which is Mos, maybe. Uh, Enclave Egyptian has a shin. And, um, and, uh, like he does. But in any case, somehow it's Hebraized. And the, the name is really an Egyptian word. And then Kimina Mishitiu actually works very well. But then it's no longer Mishitihu to be pulled out, but rather he's a water boy. Josephus, who you're all familiar with, in the Antiquities, Antiquities is his huge work, the 12-book work on the history of everything from creation all the way till his day, tells a similar story. He says that Mos in Egyptian is water, and Uses is pulled out of, so Mos, Mount Uses, Mo and Uses together pulled out of the water. Shkoyach, very nice. The problem is that both Philo and Josephus are dead wrong. In a curious twist of academic development, in 2024, we know more about Egypt of 4,000 years ago than people who lived half that distance back knew. <coughs> we know more about ancient Egypt than Chazal knew. We know more about ancient Egypt than Philo, who lived in Alexandria, do. Because the Egyptian with which they were familiar, which was no longer a spoken language, had developed over the, those 1,500 years between, or 1,200 years, between when Moshe was found in the water, in the reeds, and when Philo was writing, such that it's no longer the same language. In the late 19th century, of course, with the finding of the Rosetta Stone, everything changed. <coughs> and now we understand that Moshe doesn't mean that in Egypt, ancient Egyptian. Interesting approach that Ibn Ezra takes, which is somewhat similar. He says Moshe, meaning taken out of the water, is a Hebrew translation of his name. His name was really Munius. I don't know where he gets it from. And Munius means taken out of the water, and then it's translated. You can see it in Ibn Ezra here. The Chizkuni, 13th century Provence, has a different take, which is really wild. He says, Bat Paro, of course, was converting to Judaism. Bitya. And because she was converting to Judaism, she learns Hebrew. And because she learns Hebrew, she decides to give the kid a Hebrew name to remember that he's, to remind him that he's a Hebrew. And so she calls him Moshe because close enough. Of course, you have to think about whether that's going to work. That's a nice idea, but is it going to work? Is it going to work for her to bring this kid back to the palace and say, Hi, Daddy, I'd like to meet this Hebrew kid with a Hebrew name pulled out of the water. <clears throat> kind of hard. He then brings another approach, which is that it wasn't Pat Paro, but it was Yocheved who named him Moshe, because Yocheved got him after he was pulled out of the water, named him Moshe, and Pat Paro said, Why do you call him that? I said, Because you, got, you pulled him out of the water. Said, nice name, we'll stick with it. Difficult. The Nitziv, who's not on the page, but he sort of is. Ravtali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin. Late 19th century, Rosh Hashiva Volozhin, 
author of numerous works. In our context, the most significant one is the Ha'amek Davar, his commentary on Chumash. It is a classic. And he says something that could not have been said 100 years earlier on two levels. What changed in the 19th century? A lot of things. But what changed in the 19th century that impacts on our study of Tanakh and has echoes all the way till 2024 and further on? Two things. First of all, the development of all sorts of academic disciplines relating to the Tanakh, including anthropology and archaeology, etc., which shed light onto how we understand Tanakh. And two, we call that the Enlightenment, sort of, and two is another movement that took place that allowed Jews to participate in that world of academia. We might call that the Emancipation. And as a result of that, then Steve says the following. I have a student who went to university and studied ancient Egyptology. And he told me that in ancient Egyptian, the word Moses means son, S-O-N. You can see the hieroglyph at the bottom of the page. By the way, it's a word you already know. What's the name of the land where Yosef had his family settle in Egypt? Ramesses. Now, important to note that in Shemot, the city that they build is called Ra'amses, but in Breshit, it's Ra'amses. There's a Shva under the Ayin, and it's a, the Mem is a, uh, a Shva Nach. Ra'amses. What does Ra'amses mean? Son of Ra. Who's Ra? One of the gods in Egypt. The sun god. So Ra'amses would be an Egyptian equivalent to Benaya, son of Hashem. And so you know the name of Say. So now the Nasib says, that's what she called him. Look at the Pasuk again. She adopts him. What does she call him? Son. And the Nasib then adds, and I don't know where he got this from, that the custom in ancient Egypt was when there was a child born in the court, they named him Maseis. He's like a son of the people. Like Hayelad. That's the way he says it. So therefore, Moshe, with his name in Egypt, is broadcasting who he is. He's a child of the court. Really powerful. So then you, you're going to ask, so what's Minhamayim Mishitiyu doing there? And why does Hashem call him Moshe, Moshe? So we have to remember, Tanakh is filled with what we call Midrash Shem. A Midrash Shem means you have a name, either of a place or a person, and that we play with it. We tease it. We give it a new meaning, an alternate meaning. I'll give you three examples right away. Who is the father of our people? Avraham. Avraham. The father of this big nation. What's his son's name, the one that we care about? Yitzchak. Thanks. I take a lot of pride in that one. Now, Yitzchak, and what happens at his weenie roast? Sorry, the part of that when he weaned him. What does Sarah say? We play with it. What's his younger son called? Yaakov. Why is he called Yaakov at birth? <coughs> Holding on to the heels. What does Esau say later on when, when he discovers that Yaakov tricked him again? And Esau's sitting there thinking, oh, what a good chap I made. I mean, I'm out of bracha, but good chap. 
It's not limited to Breshit. In Sefer Yehoshua, we cross the Ardain and we camp at a place called Gilgal. And at Gilgal, because it's the 10th of Nisan, Yehoshua performs a mass Brit Milah on all the men because they're about to do Korban Pesach and they haven't been able to do Brit Milah the whole of the years in the desert. It's too dangerous. And Hashem says to him, Hayom galoti et cherpat mitzrayim yalechem. I have now rolled away the shame of Egypt. Gilgal, And they call the place Gilgal. It was already Gilgal. Hashem is playing with the name. So watch what happens here. It's, it's luscious. It's gorgeous. But Paro calls the boy Moses, meaning son. And what does HaKadosh Baruch Hu call him? I like the name. We'll keep the name. But Paro gets a little credit. I'm going to make it a Hebrew name, though. Moshe. Because what does Moshe mean? Somebody who draws others out. Hashem tells him from the very first second, the first time that Hashem speaks to him, he says, your identity is Savior. That's who you are. That's not what you do. That's your identity. Moshe. Moshe, Moshe. And so what does Hashem tell Moshe to add to this story when he writes it down, either Har Sinai or Avot Moav? HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells Moshe to add, this is the Nitziv, to add to the end of the Pasuk the Hebrew meaning. Thus giving us a lot to investigate, but then also setting us off on a path of understanding. This is the beginning of the most awesome career of a leader that we know of. And it starts by him learning at a young age and then hearing it confirmed at a much older age. You are a savior. That's your job. You were formerly a son of the court. You rebelled against the court. You killed an Egyptian. You ran away. But now please understand that all of that was building towards your real job in life, which is to be a Moshe. And with that, we now understand what Bat Paro was saying, but also why HaKadosh Baruch Hu turns it and uses the same name to, to, to address him, also leaving us with a beautiful mystery, which is, what was his real name? The answer is, we don't know. Thank <laughs> you.